first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the phone? No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Why do we have the lowest healthcare outcomes in the world? Why are we the most expensive in the world? Where is the profit going? Where is all this money that Americans are paying for healthcare? Where is that going? Hello, and welcome to The Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am Sarah Cliff, filling in for Ezra Klein, and today my guest is Pramila Jayapal. She is a second-term congresswoman from Seattle, and she is the lead sponsor of a brand new Medicare for All bill. Her bill just came out yesterday. It has 107 co-sponsors in the House, and it drops at this moment when Democrats are really coalescing around a single-payer platform. So we really wanted to talk to her about how her bill works, what it would do for Americans, the type of pushback she expects from the healthcare industry. Some of my favorite parts of this conversation were talking through some of the real nuts and bolts of how do we move to single-payer. She has what I think is a pretty ambitious plan to transition us to a single-payer system in just two years. So we talk a little bit about how she chose that time frame, why she wants to move even faster than Senator Sanders would. We also talk about how you pay for this whole system. Representative Jayapal hasn't put out any financing plans. And we have this kind of back and forth about, you know, whether that's important at this particular moment or whether there are other things that they need to focus on. We recorded this interview in Representative Jayapal's office. So you're going to hear a little bit of background noises, some emergency vehicles on the streets outside Congress. And as always, you can email the show at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. With that, here is Pramila Jayapal. Congresswoman Jayapal, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. You are introducing this Medicare for All bill. Was hoping you could just start talking a little bit about how this came together. I understand you inherited this bill from other sponsors who had had it in sessions past. Tell me a little bit about joining onto this bill, becoming the lead sponsor. What's this last little while been like for you as you get ready to roll it out? Well, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I have been interested in healthcare policy and have worked on healthcare going all the way back to the Affordable Care Act. Um, I was running an advocacy group at the time that focused on immigration issues, but we got very involved in economic justice issues and health policy issues. And so we were part of the coalition at the time that was pushing for universal healthcare system and um, working very closely with labor unions and other communities of color on that issue. And then later when I went into the state Senate, I was actually on the health committee, on the health care committee for the two years that I was in the state Senate. So I've had 
this view from a number of different perspectives. And when I got to Congress, I think it was one of the first bills I signed on to was 676, John Conyers' bill, um, because I firmly believe that the market is broken on healthcare and that if we are really going to transition to a healthcare system where everybody can get quality, affordable health care, that we have to address those issues and we have to move in line with the kinds of policies that every major country in the world already has and we do not. And so I was a big champion from the side. John Conyers had introduced 676 for, I think, 20 years, done a fabulous job. Um, It was an eight-page sort of vision platform for what universal health care could look like. Um, And over the years, he got more and more co-sponsors. When he introduced his bill, even in the last session, I think it only had about 50 or 55 co-sponsors. By the end of the cycle, it had around 126. And I think it reflected um, the push in the country, both from people finally getting some pieces of healthcare through the Affordable Care Act, which I think really helped us to convince people that healthcare is a right and not a privilege. Um, also, Bernie Sanders' presidential ca- campaign last time around, which really elevated it to the presidential level. And then the Republicans stripping healthcare away from people. I mean, it was a combination of factors that I think really led Americans across the country to say, we desperately need universal healthcare. And so Keith Ellison took that bill over when John Conyers left. Keith Ellison is obviously attorney general now. Um, and people know of my interest in this. The, we worked closely with the advocacy coalition that's been then pushing on this as co-chair of the CPC. Um, it gave me a kind of a unique platform to take on the issue. And we started working on it about six months ago um, in terms of really putting together a coalition of people who were deeply involved in healthcare. We looked at Conyers' bill. We looked at Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill, and then we tried to craft a bill that would take the best of both and that would fix a couple of key areas where I felt I wanted to really have my voice on this bill and our voices on this bill weigh in. And what were your key goals? You're thinking through this healthcare system. Like, what are the key goals driving the different policies you're settling on as you're merging these two bills? I guess, you know, another way to put that is like, what is the goal of a Medicare for all system? The goal really is that everyone is covered for healthcare and that they don't have to deal with different points of payment, that they don't have to deal with multiple insurance systems, that there is one government-funded healthcare system that addresses comprehensive needs of uh, uh, people across this country. And I think this is really important because when I said the market was broken, this it, it's a little bit wonky, but I know you're a healthcare policy person, so you'll understand it. But you know, I don't want to buy my coffee from the government. I don't want to buy my computer from the government. But there are some areas that cannot be centered around profit making. And that is what this healthcare system in the United States has become. You have a system where pharmaceutical companies last year alone made a minimum of $50 billion in profits. You have a system where the insurance company CEOs are making 82 million, 52 million, 26 million, enormous amounts of money. The price of prescription drugs has gone up so dramatically. We pay, you know, 10 times as much for an MRI in the United States as, as they do in other countries. And so we have this system that is being driven by a profit motive instead of catering to illness and helping to deal with illness, helping to deal with wellness and addressing healthcare problems early, preventive care instead of curative care. So that's really this system that, that we've put together in this 
this bill that is is very similar to Bernie's bill in the Senate, um, is really about making sure we get rid of all of that noise and have the government do what it should do, which is invest in people's health and put health over profit. One thing that surprised me a little bit, I was here covering the Affordable Care Act in 2010, is that it was a really bruising fight. It was a lot to get it done. And I'm kind of surprised to see Democrats taking on health care again a decade later. It felt like, you know, that was such a big step forward. But like you said, there's so much momentum right now. What do you think is is driving that appetite to, you know, do your bill, do bills like Senator Sanders, to have all the candidates talking about Medicare for all? What's behind that? It's, it's the crisis of health care. 30 million people who are uninsured in our country, 40 million people who are underinsured, one in five Americans that don't get their prescriptions filled because they can't afford it or they cut their prescription, their pills in half. Um, and here's the thing, even as we're spending and, and most Americans don't, they think about their pocketbook cost, right? Um, the average family who's buying insurance on the marketplace without subsidies is paying $10,000 a year in copays, premiums, and deductibles. Even if you're on employer health care, those numbers have gone through the roof. Premiums have increased dramatically. And I had a constituent write to me the other day, and he said, I, I'm disabled. I work for an employer who has very good health care, and I am providing, I am paying $35,000 a year in copays, premiums, and deductibles. So we have a system where people are sick and they're dying. They can't get the care they need. They can't get their insulin treatments. They can't get cancer treatments. They are having to make these choices about, should I foreclose on my house or should I buy my medication or get my surgery? Sometimes they're going to supposedly places that are they think are going to be covered, a hospital for surgery, and they end up coming out with a $20,000 bill and being told that insurance doesn't cover it. There are only the only people that are benefiting from that system are these industry groups, insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies. So we have got to take that out. And even if you think about prescription drugs, I mean think about the fact that Medicare cannot negotiate prices for prescription prescription drugs. The VA can. Medicare is paying on average 80% more for the same brand name drug than the VA. Those pharmaceutical companies, when that was before Congress and essentially denying us the ability to negotiate for Medicare, they put $115 million into lobbying because, and it seemed like a lot of money at the time, but it was because they're going to make such enormous profits out of it. So let's just take that all away. People are sick. They're dying. And even though the United States is spending double in some cases as a percentage of GDP than most major countries in the world, our outcomes are horrendous. The individual stories I told you are the deepest example of that. But look at our rates. Infant mortality, highest of all major uh, countries. Uh, look at our maternal mo mortality rates, highest. Our life expectancy, the lowest. I mean, we are not getting results for this system and, and people are feeling it personally and with their families and with their pocketbooks. So I want to talk about some of the policy decisions that you make in this bill, kind of starting with, I think you touched on this already, the decision to have no copayments, no deductibles. You know, when you go to the doctor, you're just not going to exchange money with them Correct. in any way. There's a lot of European countries, they do have some kind of copay, you know, usually more affordable than ours. You know, why go the no cost sharing route? You know, why not ask the wealthy, for example, to kick in 10, 15, 20 dollars? when they go to the doctor. Well, we want to make this as simple as possible. And we believe healthcare is a human right. 
it is a right and not a privilege. So you can't say it's a right just for the people who are not wealthy. Um, you have to say that it's a right for everybody. But you also can't say that only the wealthy should get health care, which is the system we have now. So we have said across the board, it's a human right. Everybody should have the right to go to the doctor without that cost sharing. And there's so much study, you know, so much research that's been done that shows that when you have a cost, even if it's minimal, it stops people from going, right? And what we want to do is get people to the doctor as soon as they get sick. Preventive care is always less expensive than curative care. We want to make sure that people get the drugs that they need so that they can take care of whatever it is that they have as quickly as possible. So we don't want to have copays in here. We want people to have a system where they don't have to deal with any of that. They just go into the hospital of their choice, the doctor of their choice, because anyone who tries to say, as, as some, uh, some people have tried to say, that this plan is going to take away the right for people to see who they want, actually, it's going to give you more choice because insurance companies are increasingly pulling back and saying, oh, you can only go to that doctor if it's in network. Our plan would allow everybody to see whomever they want in whatever facility. The government is not providing any of that. It's still the same facilities that they've always had. The only difference is that your card that you show is a government card instead of funneling money to insurance companies that really are just making profit off your illness. So when I talk to people in like European systems that have some kind of minimal copay, like the thing they will say is like, we actually do want people just to think like a little bit before going to the doctor, not the people who can't afford it. will have exemptions for the low income, but like for, I don't know, someone who's decently well off or even like up to Bill Gates, like they should at least think before using the doctor. Is there any value to that? Or it sounds well, like here's the thing about really? the United States. We have been thinking about that for a very long time. That is the only thing Americans have been thinking about for a very long time. So we just don't have the same problem that European countries may have. I still think, even on your point, the research sort of, I think the research overwhelms the other direction, even if you take that consideration into account. But people do nothing but think about healthcare costs in this country. They wake up in the morning wondering if they're going to be able to put food on their table or if they should use that money to buy prescription drugs. They wake up in the morning wondering if they should drive to Canada to get their drugs. They wake up in the morning wondering how they're going to take care of their sick person uh, because that person doesn't have healthcare. So, I mean, that is all people have been thinking about. We want people to contribute their best selves. We want them to be healthy. That is an investment in our economy and it's an investment really in in who we are as a country. Do you see any role for private health insurance in the healthcare system you're envisioning? Well, our plan would not use private health insurance, and it would be a comprehensive set of benefits, and everybody would be covered. And just like in Medicare, we, you know, we say no duplicative care, right? No duplicative coverage. But sure, if private insurance companies want to, you know, provide plans for cosmetic surgery or some other thing that's a wraparound benefit, you know, some super duper luxury plan. There's not much left, though, because you There's guys not much have left most of Because it. that's how it should be. Um, I really believe that's how it should be. Um, and, you know, we... Uh, we believe that the private insurance company will adjust and they will find things to offer to people. And there may be some employers who say, you know, instead of the um, uh, X kind of glass glasses, we're going to give you the 3D super fantastic where you can listen to everybody as you as you look uh, glasses. That's fine. They can do that. OK. <laughs> what about duplicative insurance? Like I know if you look at the Australian system, you know, they let you buy a plan that essentially competes against the government plan, gets you into 
certain private hospitals, private room, faster wait times. It sounds like that's not something you would envision. No, absolutely not, because it really does create a two-tiered system. And you see it not just uh, in in Australia, you see it in Germany, some of the things that are coming out of Germany, where essentially, if you have a plan that says, hey, if you're wealthy, you can buy better access, then you will create that situation where people can buy better access. We don't want that. I think if you make $500,000 or you make $50,000, $50,000. You should have access to the same health care. Congress members shouldn't have better health care access than workers. CEOs should not have better health care access than the average American. Now, that should just be a principle, right? If healthcare is a human right, then what gives us the right to say it's a human right, but we're going to give you sort of the, the lowest possible plan that you can have if you're poor? No, if you're if you're poor, if you're a working family, if you're middle class, or if you're rich, let's all have the same plan for everybody. It, it is what the majority, there are some outlier countries, but it is what the majority of countries, major industrialized countries do. Mm-hmm. It reminds me, um, oh, in this great book, T.R. Reid wrote about different healthcare systems. He said about Canada's healthcare system, that Canadians are fine waiting in line as long as like the rich Canadians and the poor Canadians like all have to wait. It's about equity. I mean, listen, health equity is a huge issue in this country. You see it in the statistics. Um, It's got to be built into our structure. That equity has to be built into our structure. And the best way to do that is to make sure that everybody gets the same care. Do you think Americans are, are there in believing that healthcare is a right? Like one of the things I went with Senator Sanders to Toronto last year. And I think one of the things that struck me is it just Canadians, maybe because of their healthcare system or they just believe that everyone deserves healthcare and they're okay for like non-urgent things waiting in line a little bit. Do you think Americans are there? Like, it seems like we might be more divided on whether or not. I don't think we're divided at all. I think we are there. I don't know that I would have said that five years ago, but I think we are there now for all the reasons I mentioned. And I think that insurance companies, industry front groups that, you know, have their own polling places and and build their coalitions with very nice sounding names um, are trying to have people believe that they're going to lose something if they stand up for this basic human right. But I will tell you, Republicans and Democrats and independents, both in the polling, but also the ones who come up and talk to me. I mean, it's interesting. You know, I have some Republican small business owners who will say to me, I don't agree with you on a lot of other things, but can you just go get that Medicare for all bill done? Because think about this, the burden we put on creativity and innovation in this country, on small business owners who have to come up with insurance for their employees if they want to try and be competitive. They've got to search for some plan that's going to serve five or 10 employees, which is going to be really, really expensive for them. Um, And they say, listen, I'd be willing to pay into the system if you just provide it. And I know people are taken care of because actually I think a lot of small business owners in particular are community-based businesses. They do care about the people that work for them. They do see that everyone should have health care. So I think everyone is there. And now we just have to fight the hundreds of millions of dollars that I am sure will come in trying to put fear into every American about what they're going to lose and how terrible this is and how much it's going to cost. Well, I got news. 18% of GDP is what we spend on healthcare right now, double most major countries in the world. And when you're paying $10,000 out of pocket 
$35,000. One guy, one of my constituents, HIV positive, has to work for a company because his HIV meds cost $5,000 a month. I mean, this is a story after story and people who have literally died because they couldn't get care. So if we want to talk about, you know, what we have to do, we've got to talk about the human cost and the economic cost of the system that we have that only benefits the very few. One of the big benefits that's in your plan that was not in Senator's plan, Senator Sanders' plan is long-term care. Can you talk a little bit about the decision to include that, how yeah. that, like what that actually entails. This has been an issue for a long time, and we have to deal with the issue of long-term care and an aging population, folks with disabilities. And right now, basically, you don't get long-term care unless you're poor enough to qualify for Medicaid. And then even then, um, you have to wait on a waiting list. I think the Medicaid waiting list is about 500000 if you want to get home care instead of institutional care, because the default right now is institutional care. But this long-term uh, supports and services piece of our bill is really exciting to me because it takes on the idea that if you have a disability, if you're a senior, if you have one or more things that prevent you from from living, activities of daily living, then you should be able to access care for that. And I think that we've incorporated a, a plan that I think will you know, benefit at least those 500,000 that are on the waiting list of Medicaid and likely many more than that. Um, and we've also switched the focus so that the default is home-based care. The last thing I'll say about long-term care is it affects primarily women and folks of color. I mean, if you look at the unpaid caregiver industry, it is primarily women who step aside from whatever they're doing and are the ones who look after their families, who give up jobs, who give up dreams, who give up hopes, who give up pay, who take money out of their own pockets to try and pay for the care of others. And so this is a gender equity issue. It's a racial justice issue. And of course, it is a rights issue for people as they have these disabilities, as they age, to be able to have care that lets them live in dignity. Mm -hmm. And do you see the debate moving towards a bill that has this? Or I know this is kind of, seems like one of the bigger differences between your bill and Senator it is. Sanders' it's bill. One of the, it's one of the big differences between our bills. Um, and I do think it will allow us to really bring this issue out into the open. And I've been surprised at how many people that I didn't even necessarily think would be um, interested in having this conversation are just so excited that we've put it, put it into the bill. You know, we also have unprecedented labor support on this bill. Um, SEIU has endorsed the NEA just endorsed, AFT has endorsed, the machinists. I mean, our labor unions also understand that all of these issues, I mean, increasingly SEIU, for example, has long-term caregivers, of course, um, and also that when you have to bargain expensive health plans, Increasingly, you are taking out of the, the taking that out of wages, um, increase in wages that are being left on the table. So we we really do have an unprecedented coalition of support, and I think that this is going to be a fight that will be won by millions of Americans across this country who stand up and refuse to be told no by insurance companies and pharma companies. One of the things I was interested to read in the summary was that you have um, a workforce retraining proposal, and I was. Curious if you talk through like what kind of jobs would be lost in a transition yeah. to a Medicare for all system. 
how do you envision them being retrained? Like, right. who would that be affecting? Well, there's about one to two million jobs in the insurance industry. And given that we're not going to be utilizing insurance industry plans, uh, private insurance plans, um, those folks will have to, you know, find something else. Now, I think there are several things around that. One is that there is an aging workforce. I mean, the, the, um, demographic in the insurance industry uh, does have a number of people who are older. Some of them may, cho- may choose to retire. We need to make sure that we're looking at their pensions, make sure that they're protected. But we also think that the system we're creating will have a huge number of jobs. So we actually think the majority of people can be incorporated into a new healthcare system um, and can be retrained for those jobs. But even if we don't use everybody, um, we think that there are a lot of you know opportunities to look at how they get retrained and for what positions. And so the fund is really there to sort of come up with the best ideas and best practices about how we would do that. So that could be pension benefits, it could be retraining, it could be um, you know, a whole host of other things. We haven't prescribed what that is. And it's part of why we want to have hearings, because we want to make sure that people are engaging in this discussion about what that what that retraining fund looks like. Uh-huh. But it seems like there'll certainly be some jobs lost. If you get rid of yeah. this, like administrative, yes, like there will system we yes, have. Because right when now. you think about the administrative costs of our yeah. healthcare system today, 25 to 30% of our cost is in administration, which is really crazy. Yes, <laughs> really crazy. Um, so yes, absolutely. We will be part of the savings that we get from our plan is that we get rid of um, some of that waste, administrative waste. One other area I wanted to touch in is transitioning to a system like this. You envision a two-year transition, which I believe is faster than Sanders' four-year transition. How do you, this is a, a lot to get done in two years. Yes. Um, how do you envision moving? And what, I guess maybe to back up, why is that faster transition important yeah. to you? Um, yeah, this was another area where we looked very carefully. John Conyers 676 was actually a one year transition. Oh. <laughs> um, and Senator Sanders had a four year transition and a very good Perry study that Bob Polin and others put out on Senator Sanders' bill sort of goes into this. But the problem is if you take too long to transition, then you have a marketplace that knows it's not going to continue um, and therefore can hike up prices even more in the interim because it's sort of operating as a bridge, right? And so we think that having too long of a transition is actually really detrimental for most Americans. And and the, the reality is we already have Medicare and Medicaid. So, you know, a lot of people are already in the system. The systems have to be merged. So year one of our plan is merging all of the systems, setting up the administration to bring in new people. Employers are already tracking who they have. And so it's not going to be, you know, so that's another piece. And then we would have to have, you know, a whole series of things that would be done at point of contact, various points of contact where people automatically get insured, um, a, a number of things like that. So that's year one. Year two is we're going to just try out those administrative systems by just increasing the numbers slightly. So we would have 55 and over would be covered, 18 and under would be covered. So that's year two. We're sure all the kinks are worked out. Beginning of year three, everyone's covered. That feels very optimistic to me, mostly just from my experience covering the Affordable Care Act and healthcare.gov. I'm sure you remember when healthcare.gov launched, it didn't really work, and they had had a four-year window. But see, what healthcare.gov did is they didn't combine everything. 
I mean, they still had multiple plans out there. They still had all kinds of different insurance plans. Every state had different procedures. Every insurance, uh, you know, body had to be set up. These separate insurance commissions in different states had to be set up. I mean, there were so many things that the Affordable Care Act was incredible um, in expanding access for tens of millions of Americans that cannot go unsaid enough or cannot be said enough. But the reality is it didn't take on that broken marketplace. You don't achieve the efficiencies. You don't achieve sort of the speed of transition unless you're willing to push those things out and really have everything come to one point of contact. Did you know the Tribeca Festival premieres more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts and live tapings of popular podcasts you know and love. Attend Slow Burn, the hit narrative podcast exploring the Briggs Initiative. Experience an exclusive live taping of Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy as they investigate complex stories of people who've done wrong or been wronged. Or get a vibe check on today's politics, entertainment, and news with a live taping of Vibe Check with Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Tell me a little bit about what you're expecting in terms of the fight over this. I think I saw you tweeting about the New York Times article that there's now this, I forget what their name is, but a very nicely named coalition of folks who are gearing up to oppose this bill that you're rolling out. What, what are you preparing for there? And how do you do, you know, better than people who have tried to fight this and, you know, not been able to win? I think we are ready. I think Americans are ready to stand up for something that is a basic human right. And I think there are tens of millions of Americans across this country who want to take on this fight, who want to see us take on this fight. I think many of my colleagues are ready to take on this fight. We know that we don't have as, as much money as these companies, but I would just say to every American, every time you see a poll, ask who is funding that poll. Every time you see, you know, some sort of question come out, uh, ask if it's really true what, what people are saying. And let's push back over and over and over again. So we are setting up a, an unprecedented coalition this time. Um, obviously we have the presidential candidates and the presidential campaigns and, you know, multiple presidential campaigns have endorsed this idea. And so we will have a different a whole different platform, again, to take us to the next level. It is past time for this. And it is offensive to me when these industries who are profiting so much on people's health care would put at this point, you know, sometimes up to half a million dollars into each member of Congress. If you were to average it out, that's how much these these drug companies from 2015 and the first half of 2016, they spent two billion dollars on lobbying. That's about a half a million dollars for each member of Congress. I don't take corporate PAC money, so I'm leading this bill and I'm happy to just say, no, no corporate PAC money. Let's do what's right for the American people. And I believe that will happen. And anybody who says it's too ambitious, it's too bold, I would just say, what 
policy in the history of this country, from ending slavery to getting the right for women to vote to sending somebody to the moon, has ever been built on some small nibble around the edges idea. It has been built on a core moral value, a core idea of who we are as Americans. And that's what's going to allow us to fight for this. So there was this theory that President Obama had around the Affordable Care Act that you needed buy-in of industry to pass something in healthcare. And I remember like the image I have that I remember from the Affordable Care Act is like him lined up with a doctor from the AMA and with the hospital association and insurers all saying like, we support this healthcare bill. Do you, I guess, do you operate under that theory? Do you think you'll get support from the industry or do you feel like this is just not something you really need to do the legislation Well, you want. it depends on which industry. I mentioned that small businesses are going to be absolutely with us. We have uh, the largest nurses union, uh, National Nurses United is with us, SEIU, which takes care of a lot of our uh, nurses also, but long-term care workers. Um, we, I think, will have uh, a number of doctors who are with us. So the physicians, I forget what it's called, but the partner, Partnership for National... Physicians, Physicians for, for National, National Health, Health Plan. Plan. <laughs> yes, PNHP is with us. Um, you know, we even have some people, uh, one who has written before and will testify tomorrow, who worked in an insurance company, who is going to talk about how crazy some of what happened there was. And he is now a huge supporter of uh, this Medicare for All plan. So we will have a number of people. I have had I will tell you, I've had some hospital folks come up to me and say, look, I can't come out and say this publicly, um, or people who are leading their physician teams at hospitals um, who will say, I can't say this publicly because I'm afraid from you know what will happen. But you know, we absolutely think this is the way to go. And I think honestly, uncovering a lot of that and allowing it to be okay for people to speak up for the right to have healthcare as a right and not a privilege is part of what all of this is going to be. And for the first time in the history of our country, we're going to have hearings in the House on a real bill. I don't know if you just saw Joe Kennedy's statement that he released in support. He signed on. You know, he was never signed on to 676. And he calls this bill a very thoughtful piece of legislation that brings in really important components, including long-term care. He points to long-term care as an essential conversation that needs to be had. So I think, and, and in that statement, he says, you know, we need to be honest with the American people about what's happening. And I think we really need to be honest. I hope that there are lots of industry executives and individuals who are honest about the problems with our for-profit driven system and with the need for us to quickly move to uh, a Medicare for all system. One of the things you don't address in your proposal, or at least I haven't seen the summaries I've had, is how to pay for a system like this. How do you think about that issue? Well, I mean, the first thing I think about, because everyone always says, how much does it cost? And my question right back is how much does it cost for us not to do anything? So I mentioned healthcare costs, 18% of GDP right now, increasing dramatically as we speak um, in, in the next decade, up to $50 trillion spent. So we are already paying for this. It's coming out of people's pockets. Um, it is coming out of deaths and illness. It's coming out of lost economic opportunity for people. Um, and so that's the first thing I want to say is what is the cost of the current system as it is? My bill has enormous, you know, there's so many, there's no 
pay for in it, which, by the way, I would just remind you is the way every single bill ever works. Um, uh, certainly didn't see the Republicans asking for a pay for 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 their GOP tax scam. Certainly didn't see them asking for a pay for for the seven hundred sixty billion dollars in military spending that we're that we continue to do every year. Um, and so. I have lots of ideas for how we can do that. Two thirds of the cost is already being contributed through Medicare and Medicaid um, financing. So we're really talking about a third. Um, and most employers are paying a lot of money right now. By our plan, our theory is that employers would actually see a decrease in what they're paying. Um, and the average family would see a decrease of 14%, according to some studies, in what they pay in deductibles, premiums, and, and co-pays, because that's a huge amount right now that families are already paying for. So we think that there's a lot of different ways, certainly uh, the kind of um, tax on millionaires and billionaires, a wealth tax, um, employer premiums into the system, um, and then they get provided with the health care. That is, I think these are all ways to pay for it. But I would just say that it's it's never, it never really is about cost. It's really about who loses if the system changes. And that's really what it comes down to, who loses. And it's the insurance companies and the pharmaceutical companies and all the industry that that supports that, that uh, are the ones that that lose if we actually transition to a system that provides healthcare for everyone. But that's often what makes it challenging to pass single payer, right? Like one of the things I covered pretty closely in 2014 was Vermont's efforts to do single payer and they were super committed and the governor was behind it. But when they realized how much tax revenue they're going to have to raise and, you know, I do realize it would have been a general cost saving, but you're kind of changing who yeah. pays for healthcare. That's when Vermont essentially backed off their plan. Like when you look at some countries that haven't been able to launch single payer, it seems like the place that always falls apart is the financing. And like, when do you think you get to that conversation? When does that need to happen? Well, I think it only falls apart at the financing if you don't talk about what it costs us now. Because if you talk about what it costs us now, um, in all those ways that I mentioned, then the question is not, how can we afford it? The question is, how can we not afford it? And it really flips it on its head. When Social Security was passed, when Medicare was passed, when we set up our unemployment compensation, these are all programs that cannot run according to a market. They have to be, they have to be supported by the government because there's not a lot of profit in helping sick people get well. Um, I mean, there can be if you set it up the way we have, but there shouldn't be. Let's put it that way. Um, and so I think that the cost is a red herring. It's an, I think, an industry talking point. Everyone wants you to ask that question. But the real question is, we never ask how we're going to pay for certain things. But when it comes to things that benefit the majority of Americans, in fact, all Americans in this case, um, then all of a sudden cost becomes a question. But we're going to, this this healthcare system that we have, I mean, double, double the cost, the most, I mean, you couldn't imagine a more expensive healthcare system, double the cost of all major countries in the world with the worst outcomes of any major country in the world. That's just not sustainable. If we move to like a Medicare for all program, do you think our prices, is it reasonable to expect our prices to look like Canada's prices? Is that too hard to get to? You given mean drug prices? Or drug prices, just hospital prices, which yeah. generally are incredibly like, you know, I hear from people with $25,000 MRIs, which is just wild. Yeah. Could they look like Canada's or would that just be like too 
disruptive to like this massive healthcare system that's a fifth of our economy. I mean, what you have to do to really get a healthcare system that's universal coverage, that's affordable and and that that you know works is you got to control the costs and you have to have a large pool, right? Because when you have a large pool, you're able to bring down costs substantially. So, um that's what we're building into the system. So both through, you know, some of our techniques around global budgeting, um, some of our techniques around pharmaceutical uh, drug pricing, not just the carrot, but the stick as well. So yes, we want to negotiate. But if you don't negotiate compulsory licensing, right, you get to say to a manufacturer, okay, you don't want to negotiate with us, then we will actually give the authority to produce generics of that of that drug that compulsory licensing frankly i think serves as a stick because i don't think once we show that we're serious about that kind of a strategy that many people will do that we will get people negotiating with us um and then you know and i think that when everybody is being paid the same thing for uh, uh, you know for for these procedures then people will start to compete on quality and efficiency rather than uh you know other other pieces right we we will see people trying to do better with uh, with what they should be doing, the results of their procedures, those kinds of things. So this is probably the wonkiest question that I have for you, so I'll warn you in advance. But one of the things I was interested that I saw in your proposal is moving away from pay-for-performance, going to a strictly fee-for-service system. You know, as I've covered the Affordable Care Act, I know the Obama administration was really high on pay-for-performance, on kind of paying doctors when their outcomes are better. You know, Tell me a little bit about, yeah. I don't know if it's fair to call it going in the other direction, but... It's not really going yeah. in the other direction because we have other things that are really uh, addressing price controls and quality controls, right? So there are other pieces of the bill that do that, as I mentioned. Um, but the jury is still out on those paper for performance uh, measures. And we have a clause in there that allows the the secretary to continue to evaluate those measures. And if there are ones that really prove to be successful, then we would like to incorporate them. But as it is right now, I, you know, I'm not sure that we know that they work. It sounds good. Everyone wants to have pay for performance because there's this idea that, you know, if I give you... T- 10 bu- if I say you get 10 bucks if you do this, then you're going to do it. But that's not actually how it works all the time. And sometimes there are real disincentives to do certain things if you're being paid on performance. I mean, in a totally different world, in the education world, we've sort of seen some of the I- impact of that. And so here in the healthcare system, I just think we have to be very careful. So we're not saying it's... it's um, we're saying let's take a step back. Let's evaluate that. Let's put in place the other things that we do know um, has shown real benefits. And then if those things, if there are pieces of that that can be tweaked or that are um, shown to be effective, then we should incorporate them. A little bit separately, I know you secured these Medicare for all hearings. What is your goal for those hearings? What do you want to get out of those? I'm so excited about them because for the first time we will have a national conversation. It will be on national television um, about a universal healthcare system. How crazy is that? It's <laughs> it's it's 2019. Did you know richest... when you were bargaining for them that they had never happened before? Or? I did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah I knew that. Yeah. Um, there was a subcommittee hearing in the Senate. Uh, a very long time ago, it might have been Kennedy um, okay. that that wasn't on Medicare for all, um, but it was on sort of a piece. But yes, I had done the research around that. Okay. Yes, I knew that. Because look, this is one way to keep it 
to keep telling lies about what it might mean and to keep scaring Americans is to not get at the real issues. What are the costs in the system? Why do we have the lowest healthcare outcomes in the world? Why are we the most expensive in the world? Where is the profit going? Where's all this money that Americans are paying for healthcare? Where is that going? What about those pharmaceutical companies and those insurance companies? And then in the end, what is the plan forward? Because it's really easy when 676 was there, and even some articles that didn't know that I had, you know, am introducing a very different bill with a real plan. People were saying, oh, there's really no plan. It's just a nice concept. It's an idea. Well, this is a real plan. And you can disagree with parts of it. There are better ideas that we should incorporate. That's what the hearings process is about. Not everything is figured out. I'm looking forward to having a conversation with my colleagues to say, okay, let's find the best way, but let's try to get there. So these hearings are going to be very important because it will finally open a conversation that is desperately needed because tens of millions of Americans do not have health care, cannot afford health care, go to bed and wake up every morning thinking about how they're going to pay for some critical surgery, how they're going to pay for their prescription drugs, seniors sitting at their kitchen tables and cutting their prescription pills in, in half because they can't afford the prescriptions. I mean, it's untenable to me that um, we would we would have this kind of a system because in the end, not only do I believe it is a moral thing to do, but even if even if there was somebody who really was like, oh well, you know, I don't I don't agree that healthcare is a human right. I don't know who's going to. There are lots of people that try to say that. I think, but let's say they don't agree. Just look at the economic costs to our country of having a healthcare system that is such a drag on our economy that stops people from being their most innovative and creative, and that literally lets people die in the richest country in the world. Lets people die. It just can't be. Are you expecting as you go down this legislative path that, you know, I think right now what I see in your plan is this really broad set of benefits, no co-payments, no deductibles. It sounds like the kind of plan all of us would want to have. Are you expecting as you go down this legislative path that certain compromises might have to be made, like certain benefits get cut because of the cost of the package, co-payments, deductibles? Like how do you is this the version you see becoming law in the U.S. or kind of the ideal version that gets worked on through Congress? Um, I don't think about it that way. I really think about what should it be. And this is what I think it should be. Um, is every piece of legislation a set of choices and compromises down the road? Yeah, at some point, you know, different things get changed. But there are some core pieces in here that cannot get changed. What are the, um, What is the core to you? Well, to me, it's that people shouldn't have to worry about which hospitals or doctors they can go see. There should be no private insurance plans that are part of this. This really should be a government-funded system. should be the same for everybody. No rich people get to have a different level of service than, than poor folks. Um, and, you know, in the end, we want comprehensive coverage. I worked in public health for 10 years. And um, this idea of the cost of curative care really does not get talked about other than in the health professional sector, right? But if you can go see the doctor when you're starting to get sick or when you start to feel sick and you don't have to worry about a copay or deductible or, you know, what it's going to cost you, you will go see that person. And then if you don't see that person, you're just going to get sicker and sicker. And then you're going to go into the ER, which happens all the time. And then you go to the ER, it costs taxpayers so much more money. Um, and so I just think we should make it as easy as possible for people to get health care. Mm -hmm. And nobody should go bankrupt because of health care costs. 
we should not have two thirds of all bankruptcies in this country being because of healthcare costs. It seems like one of the key things you all have to do up here in the Capitol you know, is prioritize different things. And you know, you have this, you have the Green New Deal, you have so many immigration things, you have so many things that are coming out of the woodwork. And, you know, when I think back to the beginning of the Obama administration, they really went big on healthcare. They decided that's kind of number one out of the gate. Where do you feel like for you, Medicare for all ranks in this prioritization that you know, it's in my top three priorities. I mean, obviously, immigration, immigration, I know, like the back of my hand. I mean, I just put me in front of anybody and I can talk about any aspect of anything. And and healthcare is much, much more complex. I understand that um, it has a significantly uh, incredibly well-funded anti-Medicare uh, for all lobby, which I am not afraid to take on. Um, and there are lots of complexities, you know, and, and we have an existing system that we are going to have to change. And that always allows people to try to fearmonger about what might come about, as you saw with the Affordable Care Act. Um, and so this is definitely, I mean, immigration, this and, oh, you're going to make me pick my third. I'm not sure what my third <laughs> is, but, but um, uh, you know, climate, democracy reform, they're, they're all up there. But climate, um, you know, I, I intend to do some things on climate change, but this is this is what I'm going to spend a significant amount of my time on. No because question. it feels urgent to you? Or? It feels urgent. Okay. It's a crisis. I mean, you want to talk about a national emergency? To me, healthcare is a national emergency in this country. I just see constituent after constituent, person after person writing to me. Even just in the last day, we introduced that Medicare for All video on our Twitter feed. We had 100,000. Uh, no, how many view views do we have? We had a lot of views on that thing before, uh, before the day was out. And people, you know, texting little stories, tweeting little stories to us about what they were going through. And so um, this is a crisis. And I just, I literally, maybe you can tell from the passion I have around this, I do not understand how the richest country in the world cannot provide health care for all, all of the people within the country. I just don't get it. Do you see any downsides to moving to a Medicare for all system? Are there any trade-offs we'd have to make as a country to have this healthcare system that would be, you know, as you argue, better for us? Compared to what we have right now? No. I really don't. You know, I think I think that people um, people want to accuse the plan of doing all kinds of things that it doesn't do. So Howard Schultz in his town hall, you know, I said he should stick to coffee. Um, and he's he, Starbucks is a big business in my in my district, and I love my Starbucks. But he said something that wasn't true. He said people were going to have to give up their doctors and hospitals. Absolutely not. It's not socialized medicine because the government is not providing those services. All we're doing is paying for them, which is very, very different. And so... You know, I, I just think that there's a lot of things that are being said about these plans that um, all you have to do is look at other countries in the world, um, Scandinavian countries, you know, across Europe. I mean, major countries in the world do this. Their people are healthier. They um, they are satisfied. Uh, and you look at Medicare. I mean, you don't have a, there are people that complain that Medicare doesn't cover enough because we didn't cover everything. So then you had to have Medicare B and D and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But um, we incorporate all of those things. So this is an expanded and improved Medicare. So we've learned from what we've done before. And and uh, no, I don't, I don't see any downsides to this, but then I'm the lead sponsor of the bill. So <laughs> are there any international healthcare systems? I know there's a lot of countries that provide universal healthcare in different ways that really speak to you as a good model for the U.S.? 
Yeah, I mean, Canada, obviously, um, I think is is a really good model. I think the Scandinavian countries um, provide really, I mean, most of them are structured similarly, as we talked about before. You know, there's a couple of countries, Germany, um, that has a slightly different system, um, but you're starting to see the problems with that. 90% of, of Germans, based on income, are in the one system. And then if you're above a certain threshold, then you go into a different system. Um, and now they're starting to see real challenges with that in terms of who gets priority for services and um, cost containment issues that they're not able to address. Um, so I think I think that we have a lot of models and um, we have been we're most close to Canada in terms of just even the states, you know, the way that the, the way the country operates, I think um, you have to look at that. And so I think um, to me, that's that's where you know, we were sort of the closest, but there's other models of it too. I wanted to kind of follow up on the idea of misinformation that you were talking about, because I think this was yeah. a huge problem with the Affordable Care Act, where you had you death know, panels. That's what I was <laughs> going to say, where you had death panels. You had so much flying around. It feels like the argument, the environment's even better for fake news at this yeah. point. How do you think about how that's going to, you know, fit into fighting for Medicare for all? How do you combat the fake information that you know, I could just envision it being everywhere with so many people yeah. lining up against yeah. a system like this. Well, I think it's a real problem, obviously. Um, however, I think, first of all, we're starting in a very different place. I mean, when the Affordable Care Act came out, we really had to make the case for why we wanted to move in that direction against a lot of resistance. But I don't think that the average American, as I as I said, I think I said earlier, you know, I don't think we had gotten to the place where people really considered healthcare to be a right. I mean, um, it I think now we're in a very different place. I think people are really suffering in a whole different way because of Republican attempts to strip healthcare away and because of some of the things we were not able to get done in the Affordable Care Act. So these giant holes that got left. Um, and so I think that now people are already primed for what we're proposing, number one. Number two, we're in a presidential campaign year. And the amount of traction that presidential candidates can get on this issue in talking about this issue and really getting it out there, I think will be very, very helpful to us. It will help to counter some of that. Um, and then we're just going to have to keep calling it out every time there's an, you know, an industry front poll or, um, you know, set of things get, that get said, we have to call it out and we have to rely on the movement of tens of millions of people across this country who know that providing healthcare to everyone is the right thing to do. And I am an organizer, as you know, that's my background. I come from that. I believe that movements are made when people on the ground speak up and organize and come together and fight. And that's what I think this is going to be about. It's not just me introducing a piece of legislation here and then sitting pretty. It's about organizing across the country and helping people to speak up and tell their stories and do speak outs about the travesties of the healthcare system as, as they, they experience it. And in the end, personal stories, I think, really do they do everything. Mm -hmm. How do the, I, That's something I get a lot from our listeners and readers is like, how can I actually make a difference? Like, how do you interact with the stories people are telling you? Like, how do they shape how you build well, the Medicare for All? Bill? Yeah, I mean, I'll give you a really, well, this isn't about how it got built, but I'll give you a really 
clear example. I, you know, I get so much constituent mail. We have, we have one of the most active districts in the country. Um, and so my staff, I'm not able to go through everything myself personally, but my staff goes through and picks three to five letters every week that I handwrite a response to. And, um, so one of the letters a couple weeks ago was this person that I mentioned to you who, um, has HIV and works for an employer. Um, but his medications cost $5,000. He hates his job. He feels miserable there, but he stays there even though he could do so many other things because he needs this healthcare. And, um, so he wrote to me and I told his story and he, um, on my Twitter feed, and then my staff contacted him and we did a little video with him and he came and met me last week at my town hall. And he said, I was so nervous to talk about myself because I am HIV positive. I didn't know what kind of feedback I would get, but I am ready. I'm ready to talk about my story. I'm ready to tell it if you think it would be helpful. And this other constituent who, you know, paid the $35,000, even though he's disabled. I mean, I use those stories on my Twitter feed. I use them in statements. I use them on the floor, but we're also collecting them, right? So when we do speak outs um, across the country or town halls on Medicare for All, which we're getting ready to do, that is an opportunity for real Americans to feel like they can do something about it. Because, you know, almost as bad as not being able to to have healthcare is not being able to do anything about not having healthcare. And if we can change that for people and really have them understand that this is something we can push for, um, Dr. King, Sojourner Truth, all these people had to build movements to make things happen because Congress is so far behind where the American people are. But we are listening and there are some of us here who are ready to fight, fight like hell to get Americans what they deserve. I think those are all of my questions. Thank you so much for yeah, joining us on the podcast. You. Thank you. Thanks for your for your work on this issue. Thank you to Congresswoman Jayapal for being here. Thank you to our producer and engineer, Jeff Geld. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back in a few days.